It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Welcome to Politico's EU Confidential Podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, sitting in for Ryan Heath once again, who's on holiday. And in this week's programme, we dive into the German general election campaign. We talk to Politico Berlin correspondent Janos Delker. Now, the big question between Merkel's Conservatives and Schulz's Social Democrats is, should Germany really you know, boost its military spending up to 2% or not? And this question has become a lot of more relevant because US President Donald Trump has been pushing for Germany to, to boost its military spending. We also hear from General Peter Pavel, the head of NATO's military committee. He talks about defence spending, about Turkey and about Russia. We also observe increased and more assertive uh, narrative uh, in uh, both uh, political and uh, military leadership. We face huge modernization of uh, all uh, Russian military. The program is to um, replace more than 70% of all the equipment by uh, 2021. And in our EU WTF feature, regular panellist Alva Finn and Politico's Harry Cooper join me to talk about former German Chancellor Gerhard Schröder's new job, about the EU and North Korea, and about Britain's new Brexit papers. So, first to the German general election campaign. Angela Merkel is back from holiday and seeking a fourth term in office. So, to catch up on how the campaign is going so far, I called up our Berlin bureau and spoke to correspondent Janos Delker. Janos, maybe just start by telling us where does the election campaign stand right now? Well, it's between five and six weeks ahead of the election now. And... I mean, the campaign is slowly starting to take off. It's been very dull so far. I mean, you know, it's kind of amazing how dull it's been. Merkel actually just got back from vacation. She was on vacation for three weeks, just got back last Friday, and somehow things are starting to get into motion. That's where we are. That being said, Merkel still has a very, very comfortable lead. She's more than 15 percentage points ahead of Martin Schulz, her key rival. And yeah, it's uh, for a lot, actually for a lot of people, she almost seems unbeatable. But that being said, you know, things are slowly starting to get into motion now. And what are the strategies of the two main camps? What's Merkel's strategy and what are the SPD trying to do to make up ground? Well, I think that's a good question. I think so far, the SPD's main strategy was just to sort of somehow get Merkel involved in the campaign. They've tried a lot. They sort of like pushed forward with all different kinds of initiatives. 
Schulz brought up the issue of a potential new refugee crisis developing in Italy right now. They published their or they released concepts for like how to reform the tax system, how to reform retirement, many other things. And well, Merkel so far has just essentially just ignored them and then all those things fizzled. Over the last three weeks, literally, Schulz was running from, you know, one campaign event at a retirement home to the next campaign event, um, you know, somewhere in the streets in the middle of nowhere in Germany and was, was, you know, campaigning, doing up to like three, four events per day. While Merkel was on vacation, hiking in the mountains, and still nothing really happened in the polls. I mean, there's still, you know, Merkel's still up at 40%, Schultz somewhere around 25%. It must be kind of frustrating for him, to be truly honest. Yeah, I imagine it must be. Uh, one of the um, things we're going to hear later in the podcast is an interview with the chairman of NATO's military committee. And military issues have become a bit of a campaign theme, right? Or the SPD are trying to make them into a campaign theme. What are they doing? What are they talking about? And, and why are they doing it? <laughs> yeah, well, that sort of has to do with the fact that Germany is, on the one hand, a very wealthy, rich country. But at the same time, it's paying very little for its military. So Germany's military budget is somewhere around 1.2% of its GDP. And that is a problem because all NATO members agreed to pay around 2% or at least 2% of their GDP for their military spending. They agreed that in 2014, three years ago at a NATO summit in Wales. And it's, you know, it was considered a guideline, but still something that, you know, that should be fulfilled within 10 years. And Germany is still down at like 1.2% or a little over 1.2% of its GDP. So this is sort of the backdrop. And now the big question between Merkel's conservatives and Schulz's social democrats is, should Germany really, you know, boost its military spending up to 2% or not? And this question has become a lot of more relevant. It's, you know, it's not new, but it's really sort of like moved to the foreground because Donald Trump, US President Donald Trump has been pushing for Germany to, to boost its military spending. And they, you know, he said repeatedly he's come sort of like come forward and, and, and accused Germany of owing money to NATO. And this is something that sort of like brought this issue to the forefront of the campaign, if you will. And now what's happening is that because Trump is obviously a very controversial figure and a controversial personality, the SPD is trying to sort of move that further towards the center of the campaign and say, you know, the message to the voters is supposed to be, listen, if you, you know, want to follow this course that, you know, Trump wants us to follow, boost our military spending up to 2% of our GDP, this is what the conservatives want to do. So, you know, that's what you get when you vote for Merkel. And if you don't want Germany to become this highly militarized nation in the middle of Europe, it essentially means that Germany would double its military budget and that would turn Germany into by far the largest military power in Europe. If you don't want that, you have to vote for Schulz. This is the message they're trying to send out now. So, so far, it hasn't had much of an effect, but you know, we'll, we'll see what's going to happen over the next couple of weeks. And what are the problems with that strategy? Why is it not hitting home or what makes it difficult for that strategy to work? I think the largest issue or the largest obstacle problem that, that Schulz and, and the Social Democrats are facing with this is it's not that Merkel has been 
uncritical of Trump. I mean, she's a very cautious person. She thinks a lot about, you know, how she says things. But she has been critical of Trump and she has been critical of him essentially since, you know, the day he was elected. That was the first thing she said. She, you know, congratulated him on his election victory. And then she reminded him of, you know, our Western values and sort of what comes with it. So it's not that Merkel is really being perceived as you know, <laughs> someone particularly close to Trump by the German public, quite the opposite. I mean, what happened, you know, this is something that really made headlines here. What happened after the election in the United States is that international media, the New York Times, you know, in particular, dubbed Merkel the last defender of the liberal West. And this is something that was really picked up here and something that sort of, you know, drove the conversation at that time. So, I, you know, I think it's going to be really difficult for SPD to send out this message that somehow Merkel and, and her conservatives are, are linked to Trump and, you know, when it comes to military spending. That was Janosch Delker in Berlin. And as Janosch was saying, one of the topics that's come up in the German general election campaign is the level of military spending. And that's also a theme in our next interview. Once again, we've raided the archive for one of our greatest hits, this is an excerpt from an interview that Ryan Heath did on stage here in Brussels back in June with General Peter Pavel. He's a Czech general and he's head of NATO's military committee. And Ryan started by asking General Pavel what effect the EU's plans for greater military cooperation would have on NATO. Now, if we bring the focus a bit closer to home, the EU obviously finally went through and formally approved the EU defence cooperation plans at the Leaders' Summit last week. What does that mean for you on the military side of NATO? Is that something that is really in the distance and not something that will affect your work in the coming years, or is it going to be an immediate impact? European Union uh, didn't come uh, with a uh, security and defense policy yesterday. It's uh, there for a long time. In fact, structured cooperation in security area is part of uh, Lisbon Treaty. Uh, it's uh, Article 42 that speaks about structured co- uh, defense cooperation. Well, uh, in uh, recent months and, let's say, two years, impulse for developing further defense uh, and security policy of the uh, European Union was uh, strengthened by dynamic uh, security uh, developments uh, in and around Europe. I think it's quite natural, and there is nothing uh, wrong in developing more uh, defense uh, capabilities uh, in the European Union. Uh, provided that there is uh, no competition um, between uh, EU and NATO. Quite often we hear uh, that the two institutions are competing. In uh, reality, what we see is much more uh, complementarity, much more efforts to synchronize our efforts uh, than uh, competing uh, for uh, employment. And we can see it in the area of development of defense capabilities, uh, reactions uh, to uh, new challenges uh, such as uh, cyber threat or hybrid threats. We can see it also in focusing on research and development, on synchronizing the efforts of defense industries. So in this sense, uh, I think uh, development of European defense identity is a very healthy process. I guess it can be quite important for countries like Finland and Sweden, because it's, it's easy to forget that they're not NATO members, even though they're obviously members of the EU and, and cooperate with NATO a lot. Do you, do you think it will help on that level to make sure that all of the EU is properly defended? 
I think uh, when uh, we see uh, security of Europe uh, only uh, within uh, the framework of uh, one or the other institution, we are uh, missing uh, some parts of Europe because there are still nations that are not members of one or uh, even both organizations. And it's difficult to consider any effective defense against the new challenges, especially those uh, coming from the south and southeast. We can only confine them uh, within uh, the structures of one institution only. So uh, we have to not only uh, cooperate very effectively uh, between the two institutions, but also to embrace other nations that are not members of either one or both institutions. So, and we have to cooperate with them as well. Mm -hmm. And that brings us to the first question on the screen there. It's a question about Turkey. It's anonymous, so we don't know who's asked it, but they want to know how you would characterize current relations between Turkey and other allies, given the political tensions that have called into question Turkey's place in NATO. We have to see how our situation in the context. Turkey is exposed to both major challenges that NATO is now facing. That is, on one hand, state actor Russia, on the other hand, non-state actors, extremism, terrorism, and migration. All these severely affect Turkey directly. In that sense, Turkey feels probably more threatened than other nations, and quite naturally, their focus on different aspects of their internal security is different, seen from Ankara or from other European capitals. We see Turkey as an important NATO ally that needs to be supported because Turkey is an element of European security and we cannot detach it from Europe in that sense. We work very closely with Turkish military authorities. There were some concerns recently about the reduction of number of personnel. Now the levels are almost... You mean based in Brussels? I mean based in NATO military structures after the attempted coup. So the levels now almost back to previous levels and we work with Turkish authorities the same way as we did before. Because it's a case you work with the people you're given. You don't have any say over who appears or doesn't appear at okay. shape and other That's with, uh, with, with all nations and uh, we have uh, criteria for every position uh, that uh, nations are sending uh, people to and uh, if these criteria are met uh, then uh, we obviously work with everyone. Mm -hmm. um, now that we've done Turkey, let's get on to Russia. I think we hear a lot about Russia but from someone who's dealing with it every single day, how real do you perceive the Russian threat? Uh, we, uh, and, uh, I mean, uh, we in uh, uniform, uh, we uh, defined uh, the threat uh, based on uh, two major uh, elements. So one is the capability, the other is uh, the intent. When it comes to capability, there is no doubt uh, that uh, Russia uh, is uh, developing their capabilities uh, both in uh, conventional and uh, nuclear uh, components. When it comes to uh, exercises, uh, uh, ability to deploy troops uh, for a long distance and use them effectively uh, uh, quite far away from their own territory, there are no doubts about their uh, growing capabilities. When it comes to intent, it's uh, not so clear because uh, we cannot clearly say that uh, Russia has uh, aggressive intents against NATO. But there are elements uh, that uh, have to worry us, and we have to uh, stay ready. So uh, we uh, uh, take uh, uh, this even potential threat very seriously. 
we do everything uh, possible to uh, be ready, both in terms of uh, capabilities and uh, readiness, to face uh, any potential threat uh, that uh, would uh, mirror the situation uh, we know from uh, Crimea, from eastern Ukraine, not to be repeated uh, against any NATO ally. And in terms of the developments that worry you, are we talking missile threat in Kaliningrad? Uh, you're talking about the controversy around the ZAPAD exercise that's coming up in September? There are uh, multiple sources of worries or concerns. One of them may be, as you say, exercise activity. Uh, Russia is conducting a number of uh, large-scale exercises that uh, go uh, well uh, beyond uh, OSCE criteria uh, for uh, uh, declaration, uh, but uh, Russia always tries to uh, keep uh, below that level uh, by uh, uh, like, uh, breaking uh, the exercise into smaller elements uh, that uh, stay below the threshold. We also observe increased and more assertive uh, narrative uh, in uh, both uh, political and uh, military leadership talking about taking all uh, necessary measures uh, to face NATO military build-up. We face huge modernization of uh, all uh, Russian military. The program uh, is uh, to um, replace uh, more than 70% of all the equipment uh, by uh, 2021. And we also observe the notes of increased uh, military capability and presence. And you mentioned Kaliningrad. Uh, another one uh, is now growing in Crimea. Uh, we uh, uh, face uh, a military buildup in Syria, some efforts in, in Libya. So um, there are uh, numerous uh, reasons uh, to be concerned. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's also possible there's stuff below the radar that we can't even know about. If we think back to cybersecurity and all the new possibilities that exist in the cyber world, um, I presume that NATO allies are doing their own networked virtual exercises as well, and it's entirely possible that Russia is doing the same. Well, um, we uh, talk about uh, these uh, new challenges uh, for which we used uh, the term hybrid warfare. Uh, Russia is not using uh, that term. However, uh, it is uh, the whole range of non-conventional measures that uh, Russia brought uh, into new level and uh, into a, a new level of integration. We may uh, talk about uh, cyber, uh, about uh, use of uh, special forces, uh, about uh, propaganda, information warfare. All these elements uh, for uh, Russia create a continuum of uh, warfare from uh, peacetime to war. So uh, there is no distinction between peace and conflict. Uh, Russia sees it as a continuum of uh, confrontation. We obviously um, take a lot of measures uh, to counter both uh, hybrid and cyber alone as NATO and also in very close cooperation with the EU. Mm -hmm. And what are the trends, just one final Russia question, uh, in Baltic and northern airspace? Because I think... You know, if you're not thinking about it every day, it can be easy to forget how crowded that airspace is. The Danish Air Force had to miss a ceremonial flyover because they were too busy chasing away Russian planes from their airspace. We've lots of numerous incidents that anyone who doesn't know about it could easily Google. Um, what's the risk of something going wrong in that sort of crowded airspace? There is always always risk uh, that uh, something uh, something will go wrong uh, when. Uh, two uh, forces uh, that are not friendly are uh, too close to each other. And uh, we are uh, close to each other uh, not only in uh, the Baltic Sea uh, airspace, but also in Black Sea airspace, uh, all along uh, the border uh, in uh, Syria. 
But up to now, uh, in uh, most of these cases, we haven't been uh, uh, observing uh, the situation uh, that would be clearly hostile against, uh, against NATO. Uh, there are some uh, violations uh, of uh, um, the airspace, uh, not uh, necessarily uh, incursion into uh, uh, NATO uh, territory. Uh, but uh, we are mostly uh, uh, witnessing uh, um, what we call uh, non-professional behavior uh, in, in the air. Uh, so uh, some uh, rules uh, that uh, are uh, not only given, uh, some uh, are a common practice. And when uh, these uh, rules uh, are broken, then uh, the chance of getting into uh, the incident is uh, pretty close. So we are trying to develop mechanisms uh, uh, with uh, Russia where uh, we uh, will be able to discuss uh, all uh, transparency and uh, risk reduction measures to avoid any uh, even potential incident. Mm-hmm. Now let's get on to President Trump, who we might describe as the elephant in any NATO room these days. Um, we've got another question there, and it's related obviously to the defence spending and to um, efforts to increase um, towards the 2% target among NATO allies. Is, I guess the question then it comes from the floor, I had it myself, is Donald Trump's intervention, is that what's actually going to make NATO great again? Is it actually perfect timing to get the alliance into a new groove to deal with these new threats? Well, I hope you don't expect me uh, to uh, make any assessment or evaluation of President Trump, but uh, I will rather talk about the effects of uh, his approach. And... Um, it's fair to say the pressure on uh, uh, non-U.S. Uh, uh, allies uh, to increase their defense spending uh, didn't come with, uh, with President Trump. Uh, it's been here for a long time, and uh, uh, the presidents uh, before him uh, were pushing allies for uh, fairer uh, burden sh- uh, sharing. The way uh, that uh, uh, President Trump adopted is, uh, adopted is uh, slightly different and probably more assertive. But uh, the effect is that it created some uh, kind of wake-up call uh, to uh, European allies that uh, the time has come to actually act. And the vast majority of nations uh, already increased uh, their defense spending. Others uh, are on the way to, uh, to do it. Uh, and uh, the commitment uh, was adopted in uh, Wales and then uh, reconfirmed in uh, Warsaw uh, for uh, all of the allies uh, to... Uh, uh, come to 2% spending by 2024. And uh, we see uh, numerous examples uh, where countries uh, are uh, meeting uh, these criteria. We will have uh, three more countries uh, this year to meet the 2% uh, threshold, and others uh, will uh, be approaching it in uh, years to come. Do you have a sense of when nearly all or all of the countries might meet the threshold? Because some are, some are really still down at 1%. Even Hungary, Czech Republic is barely above 1%. So it's not going to happen in the next two or three years, is it, for some of those countries? Well, uh, the commitment uh, uh, taken uh, by heads of state and government uh, in uh, Wales uh, was speaking about a decade. That means uh, by 2024. Nations uh, are now uh, developing uh, their national plans, uh, uh, how to uh, get uh, to uh, this, uh, this level. Uh, But uh, we also uh, have to uh, think about not only uh, figures, uh, what is also important uh, are the capabilities and uh, commitments. And uh, we have to see it in a bigger picture. 
uh, the nations uh, are uh, to uh, bring uh, their 2% of GDP, but it's only a tool how to uh, achieve capabilities that we need uh, for better collective defense and for better reaction to new challenges. That was General Peter Pavel, head of the NATO Military Committee, in conversation with Ryan Heath on stage in Brussels in June. Okay, now it's time for EUWTF, and if any younger listeners are wondering what WTF stands for, of course stands for Why the Fuss? This is when we look at things that have been making the headlines in the European Union over the past week, and we've got a special extended edition this week because we're giving Dear Political a summer holiday. So welcome Harry Cooper. Hello there. And welcome Alpha Finn. Hi. So we have three stories to look at this week, and thought we'd start with Gerhard Schröder, former uh, German Chancellor. Of course, it's election season in Germany now, and it's been announced that he is joining the board of Russia's state-controlled oil giant, Rosneft. And this is being seen as putting him into Vladimir Putin's inner circle. Now, created a bit of a fuss in Germany. Alva, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, kind of two minds about this. Obviously, he's a private citizen and he can do whatever he wants. But I think there was an idea that they were going to kind of get him out there to campaign a little bit for the party. So, yeah, I mean, it's problematic. Is he still going to be able to do that while he's now even further linked to the Russian inner circle? Um, I'm not sure. And it doesn't, yeah, it just doesn't really look good but again he's able to do whatever he wants he's a private citizen harry these stories come up from time to time there was one here about former commission president barroso not so long ago and uh, what he chose to do as a, as a private citizen what do you think about those stories in general and, and this one in particular well i mean there's no no doubt that they do pose some quite tricky questions simply because the reason that they are employed by these companies is because of their experience as commissioner or chancellor or prime minister. Their skill set is basically the network that they have. So that does smell a bit a bit off. To me, what I find quite amusing about this, um, there was a bit of a hoo-ha recently with the leader of the FDP, a chap called Christian Lindner, who suggested that Russia's annexation of Crimea should be acknowledged by the international community. And immediately the SPD said, absolutely not, this is outrageous. And then a few days later, you see that Schroeder, who is this sort of this big, big figure within the SPD still, speaking out in favour of Martin Schultz at the weekend in the Swiss press, for example, and then joining the board of Rosneft. Yeah, and I think Lindner's idea was was to say the kind of accept for now or as a kind of yeah. a temporary fact on the ground, Russia's annexation of Crimea. Provisionally and permanent, I provisionally think was the permanent, word. Yeah. yeah, and there's a, I think there's a phrase in German, nichts gilt länger als ein provisorium. Uh, our listeners can correct me if that's wrong, but that means nothing lasts longer than a temporary solution. So yeah. uh, that was obviously the, the danger there as a lot of people saw it. But it does deprive the... The Social Democrats are of a heavyweight on the campaign trail, right, if they're not going to be able to use them so much. And also they've made a very big thing of Merkel committing to this 2% NATO defence spending target. So there's a real risk for the SPD that they start looking like they're hostile towards NATO as a sort of a central part of their platform. Yeah, and I think this issue, we talked about it earlier in the podcast, that is definitely an SPD strategy to try and link Merkel to Trump and to the increased defence spending and suggesting it's a, a risk and this is obviously a fine line for the SPD to walk and there's always the danger that they're going to be seen as being too close 
to the Russians. Alva, anything to add? I think that's the main thing. They don't want to be seen as kind of like Russian apologists, do they? I don't think it's exactly the same as, as what you were talking about, kind of saying... Well, he hasn't, he hasn't said anything particularly about Ukraine, etc. I mean, that's a, there's a huge difference between those two things, in my view. How it will influence, because he, he has a big role in the party, will his influence be seen to be kind of pro-Russian leaning and will it change anything? We don't know. And he's already involved. I mean, he's I been involved say, with yeah. the Nord Stream uh, pipeline. This is already, in a sense, this is a continuation exactly. of his career trajectory it, since leaving the well, chancellorship. Well, exactly. It won't come as any. It won't come as a surprise to many people in Germany that he's taken this position because, of course, he took this this role at Gazprom two weeks after he left the, his role as chancellor in two thousand five. So this, as you say, this is not won't be a surprise addition to his CV. Yeah, but it is interesting. I mean, I follow the Balkans quite closely, and, and Schroeder was actually campaigning on behalf of Alexander. Vucic in the Serbian presidential election, which is quite interesting. And that's, Mm. I think, because or the connection seems to be that, once again, a Russian company controls Mm. a large part of one of Serbia's largest companies, which is an energy company. Mm. Anyway, one that's probably going to rumble on through the uh, German election campaign, we expect. Uh, Moving to Brussels, Federica Mogherini, the uh, EU High Representative for Foreign Policy, called in ambassadors from the Peace and Security Committee on Monday to discuss North Korea. It seemed to go on a long time, the discussions. We got a statement late in the evening. Alva, you thought this was a thumbs up, is that right? Well, I mean, I think there are arguments for both sides. Uh, Well, I thought it was a thumbs up because they reacted quite quickly in the middle of the summer. However, I think the reaction was a little bit kind of weak. (laughs) You could have probably written that press release already and from they, the outside. And they possibly yeah. did. <laughs> but it, it's kind of calling for a de-escalation, etc. And I think that that's good. In a way, it's kind of seen them as wanting to be an interlocutor with not so much power, but also, yeah, with maybe a little bit more of a reasonable response than some other parties. I always read these things and I wonder, is there any added benefit in them actually doing this? I mean, there was nothing in it that's very surprising or provocative. I mean, if, if they'd said anything other than we support continued efforts to encourage de-escalation, I mean, there's nothing very surprising there. And the key players in, in the European Union had already made clear their positions on what was going on. So in many ways, it's kind of a reiteration of what was already said at the weekend. Mm. I do think it's interesting that Federica Mogherini really has been trying to push member states to coordinate a lot more through her global strategy, trying to sort of pull the EU28, soon to be EU27, onto the same line. And I suppose when it's something like this, it's not surprising that everyone agrees. But I mean, it, it is significant Whenever the EU speaks, there are 28 members, of course. Right, I guess this is maybe that's it. It's just that you should say something, even if it's nothing mm, uh, particularly yeah. remarkable. But there is a maybe a danger as well that you emphasise that you're not really a player in this mm. particular in mm. this particular issue. This is not really one where mm-hmm. most people seem to think the EU has much to say. Um, that brings us to the uh, the final probably big event in European politics over the last week, which has been the British government starting to issue uh, position papers. What do we think about these? We got two. We got one on general customs arrangements and one on the Irish border. Harry, any thoughts? Hmm. I had a, a look at the uh, the customs paper and what struck me was the lack of detail. Actually, there were a lot of nice ideas, a lot of principles, but there wasn't really a huge amount of flesh on the bone. What also struck me was the section next steps and the UK government's next steps include a lot of consultation with British business, 
with stakeholders in the UK, but not much about the negotiations with the EU, which to me would surely be the priority. So yeah, I mean, it was obviously a helpful addition to the discussion. It gave an idea of what the UK wants. But it again, it, it, suggest, it seemed to be focused more on a UK audience, perhaps. And I think that was certainly the reaction in, in Brussels and across Europe. There was a bit of cynicism about, about its contents. Should this be an EU uh, thumbs up, Alva, in the fact that we are now getting some uh, position papers from the UK government? For a long time, people have been saying we don't even know what they want. And now at least they're starting to set out what they want. Yeah, I mean, I think it was always going to be vague on the details, right? This is a new, totally new thing. We don't know how it's going to work in practice, particularly if they don't want to fully, you know, leave the customs union in the kind of classical sense that I think everybody thought that would happen when everybody's talking about a hard Brexit. So I think at least there are interesting options, but I do think they've been criticised a lot, even in the two days that they've been out, particularly by people in Northern Ireland. Mm. They're obviously linked together, so mm. it's very unclear as to which option will be better, what the EU thinks about about it. But I think... To me, it is a thumbs up that at least there's something out there and that can kind of start negotiations about what this will eventually look Mm. like. Right, I mean, I guess this is a kind of opening position, right? Set out your opening position and then you negotiate from there. Back home in Ireland, Alba, is there a lot of talk about this? Is, Is Brexit a big concern for people? Yeah, but I don't think that anybody really had thought about how the border issue was going to work. So I think Dublin have definitely welcomed these new papers to kind of say, you know, we're going to look at this really closely because they didn't really know how it was going to work. Uh, And I think there was an expectation that proposals would come from the UK side because they're the ones Mm. who are leaving and they're the ones who are going to need to monitor the situation. Of course, Ireland will still be in the EU. So I think, yeah, it was up to them to kind of to bring something forth. It definitely is something that people talk about all the time. There's a lot of cross-border, you know, trade, but not even trade, like stuff goes up to be bottled mm-hmm. in yeah. the north and then comes back down to Ireland. So even, how does that, mm. how will that all work? Well, I think we've done some stories about, the, you know, some of the production chains for, for things that are made, you know, items are crossing the border multiple times yeah. as part of that process. So... These are the these are the questions they've the, got to answer. I, what, I, what I thought was quite quite interesting. There was a survey done. I think it was last week um, of British people's priorities or what their big concerns were in the Brexit negotiations. And the Northern Irish border was pretty low down. And mm-hmm. I think again, what's very interesting about this is what it says about the political discourse in in the UK, where Irish politics are just not on the radar and yep. they haven't been for a long, long time. So I think people are quite perplexed by how complicated this is. Yep, yep. It's a, it's a wake up call for a lot of people. Okay, well, that's it for uh, this edition of EU WTF. Uh, Thanks, Harry. Thanks, Alva. Uh, Alva, you're off on holiday? Yes, finally. Okay, well, we'll miss you, but uh, you'll be back uh, with Lena and Ryan in a couple of weeks' time, yeah? Yeah, see you then. Okay, great. Cheers. Thanks, Harry. Bye. And that wraps up another EU Confidential. Thanks so much for listening. You can get in touch with us by dropping us an email at playbook at politico.eu, especially if you have one of those dilemmas for Dear Politico. We'll be looking for more of those to begin next month. Uh, Or if you just want to get in touch with a suggestion about the programme, it's playbook at politico.eu. Special thanks this week to Cynthia Crute, and we'll catch you next week for another EU Confidential. 
If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.